collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system. And each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Great to hear you in another episode of Collective Power. This morning, our guest is Richard Wexler, who uh, I'm really proud to have here today because he's been doing a tremendous amount of work around the child welfare system and has been an activist and advocate for several years and wrote a book as well in the 90s. And so good morning, Richard. Welcome on the show. Good morning. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you. And tell us where you're tuning in from. I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, thank you for tuning in. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Richard. Sure. For much of my professional life, I was a journalist. I was a reporter for public radio and television stations, for newspapers, and so on. The book wound up actually being my bridge into advocacy. And so I have uh, been a journalist. I taught journalism for several years, and now I run the National Coalition for Child Protection. And what got you into this work? Well, it was the work in journalism. All the way back in 1976, when I was a journalism student, I did my first story about the foster care system. And I interviewed a young woman. She was a college student at the time. And she had been in nine different foster homes by the time she was nine years old. And she said that she had survived the system by keeping the rage bottled up inside her, as she put it, unlike my five brothers who've been in every jail in New York State. Mm. And I came out interviewing her for two and a half hours with a couple of conclusions. First, I was really glad I'd chosen journalism as a career. And second, I knew I would keep coming back to the story. As I did come and keep coming back to the story, I kept finding that the facts on the ground were not matching what the most widely quoted experts kept saying. So they would say, well, you know, child abuse crosses class lines. And I would think, okay, then how come the only people I see in the system are poor people? When that economy got to be too much to bear, I wrote the book. And as I say, the book was the bridge again. From a personal experience, what called you to this? Well, the personal experience, as I say, was the work as a journalist. Mm -hmm. The experience of interviewing a woman who had endured so much by the time she was nine years old. Coming back to the story and finding so many others in that same position. As she said to me, that young woman back in 1976, the people who have emerged from the system are dead. Their heart's functioning. The old heart's pumping the blood around, but they're basically dead inside. It's been killed. Either they had to kill it to survive physically, 
or somebody else killed it in them, whatever it is that makes people human. Mm. So having heard story after story like that, that kept me pursuing the issue and looking for ways to make the system better. Thank you for that. I told you this before the show started, but like I been in this work for about 20 years and I know it's taken a toll on my heart and my soul and it's requested a lot of work for me to like make sure I'm regenerated and well and can still laugh about the world (laughs) so like I acknowledge you for being in this work a lot longer than I have I mean your book was published in like 95 and I assume it took a couple years to write the first edition of the book came out in 1990 Ah, um okay And then I updated it when the paperback came out in in 1995. As I say, I started covering it in in 1976. And But it is not nearly as hard on me as it is on anyone who is on the front lines. The people who deal directly with the trauma every day, whether it is a frontline caseworker or a lawyer representing these families and going to court day after day, It's the frontline professionals who have it much more difficult. Yeah, I absolutely hear that. So tell us a little bit about your book. So first edition in 1990, this makes me feel like a little bit better because you were in the work for 15 years before you wrote the book. (laughs) Well, actually, it was in journalism for much of that that time, learning about the issues. Yes. And then... The book is what actually moved me into, into advocacy. Yeah. I guess I'm resonating with you. So I wish I had your book to read when I was working on my dissertation because I started this journey in um, 2000. And I couldn't find anything that was as critical as your book is. Like really advocated from the perspective of parents, had quotes from professionals that knew the system was screwed up. One of my supervisors was a social work person. All I was finding was article after article about how mothers were screwed up. And it didn't resonate with me. I'm very empathic. So like empathically, it didn't resonate. And that's what set me on this journey. So I don't have a journalism background. I have a social justice background. And so like what resonated for me was the contrast between what I knew mother's stories to be because I was meeting them day in and day out. I was working Mm -hmm. at a program where I got to meet them like Mm -hmm. face to face so what their experience of the system was versus what other people were saying about them. So a exactly. similar conflict fact, to what you're saying, like what the experts and what you see on the ground are like two different stories, right? Exactly. And what I ultimately discovered, however, was that there was a much wider expert range of expertise out there. Yes. It was turning up in story after story. So there is a tremendous number of people in the professional community who do get it, who do understand it, and are fighting to change it. Absolutely. And part of why I was honoring your 15 years before you wrote the book is that it takes some time to be able to wrap your head around the system, right? Like it's so complex. There's so moving pieces. Everyone has their own version of why it's screwed up. It's like it takes some time to wrap your head around it to the point where you can have a a consistent story. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what we are findings in the book. Like where some of the conclusions you draw on I hear that like outrage fueled you year in, year out and still does. Like what were the kind of the most outrageous results and what were some of the solutions you proposed? Well, 
very much the same as what we see today. And by the way, the book, as I say, has not been updated since 1995. But I would mention on our, our website, nccpr.org, is in effect an ongoing update. Mm-hmm. And the nccpr blog are ongoing updates. The biggest mm-hmm. single problems in the system are the confusion of poverty with neglect and the related problem of the racial bias that permeates the system. So the typical state neglect law defines neglect as lack of adequate food, clothing, shelter, or supervision. That is also, of course, a perfect definition of poverty. So we have found, for example, that study after study finds that 30% of America's foster children could be home right now if the family simply had decent housing. There's another whole slew of quite recent studies showing the transformative, what I like to call the transformative power of cash. For example, one study finds for every dollar you raise the minimum wage, that reduces what agencies label as child neglect by 10%. So that tells us the extent to which poverty is being confused with neglect. Um, One of my favorite studies in this regard, it showed that providing housing vouchers to families significantly cut the number of children taken away. But interestingly, when you provided the housing vouchers alone, that worked best. When it was combined by conflicting social work on the families, that did not work as well as the housing vouchers alone. So we see over and over again the extent to which this is primarily a poverty problem. And of course, with that comes the racial bias that permeates every aspect of American society. Unfortunately, child welfare, to a greater degree than many other fields, is, to use one of their favorite phrases, in denial about that. This is fascinating because the confusing poverty with neglect and the racial bias, right? I mean, you mentioned that you thankfully do this work on your website, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, right, and your blog. So mm-hmm. you're updating consistently. There's also Dorothy Roberts' book, Shattered Bonds, right, that updates those results. That's how I learned about the role. That is the definitive work. Dorothy, I'm proud to say, is a member of my group's board. And I... wonderful could not tell where the class bias ended and the racial bias began. I knew there until I read Dorothy's brilliant work, and she explains it perfectly, and that's been the basis of much of my thinking of it. Yeah, phenomenal. Over the past 20 years, I've talked with like over, I don't know, I can't count anymore, but probably 100, 150 people between parents and uh, maybe 200 even between parents and workers. And everything you're saying confirms the folks that I've talked with. I don't talk with people in denial a whole lot. I should say that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You'll find a couple of them on this show just for flavor. Mm -hmm. I'm really committed to organizing the people who get it right? Like Mm -hmm. organizing and connecting people who get it versus trying to convince people who don't get it. In my experience, the people who don't get it, like just leave them to be social workers for five more years and then they'll get it. Like, I think there's often almost natural progression. I'm curious to know if you'd agree with this, but frontline workers often become advocates because they start looking upstream and then advocates start becoming activists after a few years because they start looking upstream, right? It's like frontline workers at some point are like, oh, my God, this is not working. What can I do to advocate so that people aren't in this position? And then advocates work 
trying to promote policy for a number of years and then start asking themselves, oh, well, you know, I think there's more than a policy here. It's going to take more than a policy. It, it requires a systems change. I don't know if you've had that experience as well. I think it depends on the individual. One of my heroes in this field, and a good example of what you're talking about, is actually a fed-up foster parent. Her name is Mary Callahan, mm -hmm. and she works out of Maine, and she did a tremendous amount to change the system, and it all began with the simple fact that she kept seeing that almost all of the children placed with her could have remained safely in their own homes if only those children if their parents had gotten the kind of financial support she was getting as a foster parent. Mm. She ultimately wrote a book. It's called Memoirs of a Baby Stealer. And then wow. she became an activist. And her activism did a tremendous amount to, for a while, transform child, the child welfare system in Maine. Now, I say for a while because there is always backsliding. And as you know, the battles always have to be refought. But there are an awful lot of kids in Maine who will never know Mary Callahan, but who owe the fact that they're safely in their own homes to her becoming aware, her advocacy, and her activism. Beautiful. Thank you for the example of Mary Callahan. We had Jasmine Banks last week, who's mm -hmm. also a foster parent, who's really yes. adamant about changing the system as like writing her own memoir. So thank you for uplifting those voices as well. I want to speak to the backlash for a second, because I think that's where systems come in place and how systems operate, right? So when we talk about a system, we're talking about a combination of rules, laws, practices, habits, mm -hmm. right? That are in a culture yeah. that's deeply rooted in the number of people who are working inside of a certain system and who, mm -hmm. of course, are being survivors, depending on who you talk to, mm -hmm. the people who have the experience of it internally. Speak a little bit to the backlash, because I think this is a really important aspect of why policy change doesn't do systems change. Speak mm -hmm. a little bit to backlash. I mean, we're seeing it in our national politics now, but I'm curious, how have you seen backlash over the years between in the child welfare system. And you have a really distinct analysis state by state. If you could tell us a little bit how it looks in some different examples. Well, I think what often happens is what you have is a phenomenon that I refer to as foster care panic. So what happens is a child dies a horrible death of child abuse, which happens in every system, no matter what. But it then becomes known that, say, the case file had more red flags than a Soviet Mayday parade. There were repeated warnings over and over. So sometimes it's politicians, sometimes it's journalists. Their only introduction to a system that is otherwise completely secret. So their question is, how in the world could this child have been allowed to die? Hmm. So efforts to keep families together become scapegoated. And as a result, workers become terrified of having the next high-profile case on their caseload. So there is a huge sudden spike in needless removals of children, a foster care panic. And instead of making children safer, the foster care panic makes all children less safe. And that's because of the enormous emotional trauma of foster care itself, the high risk of abuse in foster care itself, but also 
all that time workers are spending on false allegations, trivial cases, cases in which poverty is confused with neglect, is in effect stolen from finding children in real danger. And that's the real reason, almost always, for the horror stories. So the paradox is the response to the horror stories makes the next horror story more likely because you're overloading your system. Wrongful removal drives everything else that's wrong in child welfare. How do we get here? Like, I know you do like this really good big picture in a book of like, you know, how did this start? Mm -hmm. And how do we get here? Like, right, the so-called good intentions of like saving children, no. and protecting children. How the hell did we get here? Could you give us like a, a quick five minute history overview? Welfare system is not rooted in benevolence. It's rooted in bigotry. It was created in its current form in the 1850s, largely by a Protestant minister by the name of Charles Loring Grace. He hated and feared the Catholic immigrants in New York City. Well, those Catholics that don't use condoms. Poor Catholic immigrants who he deemed genetically inferior. But, he felt, they children be saved if they were just taken away from their parents and shipped out to good Protestant homes in the South and the Midwest. Mm. That was the origin of the so-called orphan train. That legacy of bigotry continues in the system to this day. That's where you see the confusion of poverty with neglect, where you see the racism. So we have never run that out of the system. And while most people in the system actually do mean well, they it's very difficult to see past, say, the dirty home you've just walked into as a caseworker. That's visible. The love between parent and child often is not visible. So you get this knee-jerk rescue fantasy reaction that I'm going to take that child away and put them in a home that looks more like, say, the home I, the caseworker, grew up in, without recognizing the enormous emotional trauma that inflicts on the child. And by the way, we have the data to back that up. There have been study after study comparing typical cases, not the horror stories, but your average cases. And they follow the future course of the lives of children placed in foster care and comparably maltreated children left in their own homes. And in these typical cases, the children left in their own homes typically do better. So let's talk a little bit just for like the sheer number of weeks. I wasn't able to have a social worker on the show this time. I'm pretty committed to covering the child welfare system another time with a different set of guests and having a social worker as well. To the best of your knowledge, like what's going on with social workers, right? What do you see the factors playing out there? The studies I mentioned that showed the terrible problem, the extent to which children could be home if their family simply had decent housing. The editor of the journal that produced all of that was one of my favorite social workers. She's also on our board, Ruth White, and she runs a group called the National Center on Housing and Child Welfare. Mm -hmm. Times get, however, what often get, is social workers who are a very different racial and class background from the people they are investigating. And social work training tends to focus on the notion, the very quintessentially American notion, that basically boils down to 
if you're poor, it's a mental health problem. There's something wrong with you. There's mm -hmm. something in your psyche that we can fix. As one expert put it, it, that's a grand task. Getting somebody a rent subsidy, that's a humble task. And you didn't go to social works to do humble tasks. So there's this mindset. I always cringe when people say, think of child abuse as a mental health problem or a, a public health problem. No, it's a social justice problem. Mm -hmm. And as long as we think of it as a public health problem, then we insist that the problem is with the parent. Now, sometimes it is. There are parents who are just plain evil, but that is a tiny fraction of what caseworkers see. And again, I come back to the fact that if it were a mental health problem, raising the minimum wage by a dollar an hour wouldn't fix it. And yet raising a minimum wage by a dollar an hour does reduce what agencies call child neglect. So the social work mindset, to some extent, is to view this as a public health problem. It should be viewed as a social justice problem. I want to um, highlight a couple of pieces here. One is that by the Department of Human Services' own admission, right, by their own stats, which you can see the national AFSCARS report that get issued every year. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to figure out why they're all drafts and there's never definite data. As an evaluator, because I'm an evaluator in, in my profession, mm -hmm. that's always intriguing to me that, you know, for 25 years we've been releasing reports that say uh, provisional data. When does the final come out? But uh, the portion that come out that you're ready to commit to, you know? It almost feels like um, abdicating of responsibility. Even by that data, not the 20 is small, but only 20% of children or the half a million children who are in the system got mm -hmm. there because of accusations of uh, physical or sexual abuse. So mm -hmm. what I want to speak to is that a lot of what you're speaking to is the 80% of children who are in the foster care system who you know, got there for totally other reasons, as you're saying, it's oftentimes poverty confused with neglect. Yeah. Just wanted to yeah. speak to the like the numbers of that, because I think because of the foster care panic and because newspapers inundate us with stories of children who are brutally taught by their parents, I don't think we really get how small of a percentage that is compared to the regular population. And I would add that Oftentimes, the foster care system takes away children without proving abuse. It's not proven in this way criminal court would prove something. Oh, not right? at all. So that 20% could actually be five, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. But like the 20% are the ones that it was close enough for them to be accused of abuse. But that doesn't necessarily yes. mean that they proved in a court of law that they were abused either. So 20% is even high. Oh, absolutely. Now... What defenders of the system will say is, oh, but neglect can be very, very serious. It can. Yes. Neglect is such a broad, vague definition that, yes, it can include the parent who deliberately locks a child in a closet and starves her to death. But it also includes the parent for whom the SNAP benefits have run out at the end of the month. Right. Now, which do you think is going to be more likely? So, yes, there are horror stories but they are needles in a gigantic haystack. Yep. We need to find better ways to find the needles. Vacuuming up the haystack isn't going to work. That's how you get the overload, and you actually miss those cases of real abuse. Even one child abuse death or injury is one too many. But the way we find that one is to stop overloading the system 
with all those kids who then suffer terribly when they're needlessly. And then let's talk about the 300 to 500 children who die in foster care every year, right? Like we don't treat those cases with the same outrage and panic that we do. I don't think we hold the system half as accountable as we do parents. I have not seen the 300 to 500 number, but whatever the figure actually is, it's not so much that we don't have the same outrage, it's that we don't respond the same way. So foster care paddocks, I'd say, don't work in reverse. If the child dies in his or her own home, there's an immediate assumption that, well, the system's bending over backwards to keep families together and doesn't care about child Mm -hmm. safety, so we've got to take away more kids. When the child dies in foster care, the response is, hmm, we better hire more caseworkers to inspect the foster homes more often. Mm -hmm. So it's assumed to be some kind of aberration. What the data show is that independent study after independent study has found abuse in one quarter to one third of family foster homes and the record of group homes and institutions is even worse. Now, why are those data so very different from the data that an agency like, say, the Philadelphia Department of Human Services will put forth? They will say, oh, it's only a tiny fraction. Typically, states report abuse in only 1% of foster homes or less. Well, that's because the states are, in effect, investigating themselves. So there is an enormous incentive to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and write no evil in the case file. In contrast, the independent studies don't have that bias and find these much higher rates of abuse in foster care itself. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that added lens. So I want to add one more piece around the history and then come back to Mm -hmm. what you were saying about it being a social justice issue and not a health issue. The history piece that I wanted to put in is when you were saying the approach that America has poverty, that is if, if you're poor, something's wrong with you. Yeah. So one of the things that came out in my studies that actually Andrew Billingsley book he wrote on the foster care, specifically the history of foster care for black families, Children of the Storm. There you go. That's the book. One of the things he highlighted was really fascinating for me was that when America adopted the English poor laws in 1601 Mm -hmm. as a colony, right? Like we weren't a nation yet, right? When we adopted the English poor laws in 1601, we adopted them and took out a clause. In the English poor laws, there was a clause about the public having some level of responsibility for the poor. We took that out. There's this huge blind spot, right, that hides the genocide of Native Americans. It hides all this stuff. The blind spot is this. The assumption was we just conquered a new land where everything's up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So if anyone is not able to grab, it's by their own default. That's fascinating. I did not know about that with the English poor laws, but it jives with everything that's happened in 400 plus. (laughs) Exactly. And the huge blind spots of that decision were two things. One, the assumption that everything was up for grabs while it wasn't Mm -hmm. because it was native land and we are in stolen land. And in fact, Mm -hmm. that changing of the clause basically institutionalized and made legal 
the stealing of, of native land and the occupying of native institutions, which we see to this day because treaties are never respected, hardly ever respected. And the second is that it completely ignored slavery. It completely mm -hmm. ignored that enslavement yeah. was, in fact, a reality, that indentured servants were, in fact, a reality. Some people will say indentured servants started like, like 1619 with the arrival of first Afri Africans on the shores of America, but indentured servanting started earlier. So basically, there was a seed that was planted there, and then enslavement of Africans starts and is rampant, although at this time, Native Americans were already being enslaved. So it doesn't account for enslavement. It doesn't account for the occupying and the stealing of native lands. And so basically the fundamental causes of poverty that were inserted in our system are ignored in our laws about poverty. And that's still across all of our systems. The whole notion of poverty itself as mental illness. We saw this when homelessness exploded after budget cuts during the Reagan administration. The argument was, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we're cutting out housing. They're all mentally ill people who we've stopped institutionalizing. That was utter nonsense. The primary cause of homelessness is lack of housing. Now, it is also true that cause and effect are, are, have been reversed by that argument. It is true that homelessness can induce mental illness as opposed to the, which is more of a problem than the other way around. Yes. So we constantly do this and... This same mentality, much as you describe about the poor laws in 1601, we can see this in one of the major statutes governing federal child welfare, the so-called Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. In order to get that bill passed, there was a systematic, deliberate effort to redefine child abuse as purely a mental health problem and ignore poverty. And that has set us down the wrong path for decades. That law was for, it dates for about 1973-1974. So I want to connect two other dots. So one is, I was sharing with you, like I was up at three o'clock in the morning because this is how my brain works in like a confluence of brain and body, really, because part of why I am this work is that I'm trauma survivor, uh, not of the foster care system, but other types of trauma. And Part of how my brain works is this combining of the brain and the body. And mm -hmm. so part of what I was trying to connect the dots on last night at three o'clock in the morning was like our interview, our work, particular where the outrage around Trump that in particular a lot of white women are feeling right now, like how not new that is to me, because <laughs> I feel like that's what got me on the journey, like, you know, whatever, 30 years ago of anti-racism. But, like, isn't it the supreme white privilege to implement laws in the complete ignorance of the fact that we're, in fact, creating poverty by stealing land and owning people as property? Like, mm -hmm. it's the supreme white privilege, right? That, like, mm -hmm. literally, if you look at the seeds of our systems, it is a bunch of rich white folks sitting down and saying, okay, so what laws are we going to put in the paper? And basically completely ignore the places where we're committing injustice ourselves. And this like speaks to your piece around it being a social justice issue. And let's remember that it ties, it all comes full circle in a sense, when we look at how the child welfare system has historically treated Native Americans. 
Yes. First he stole the land, then the child welfare system systematically stole the children. That's right. First in boarding schools in the late 19th and early 20th century, <laughs> where the mantra was, and this was literally said, kill the Indians, save the man by assimilating them. Then through a forced adoption program that was sanctioned by the Child Welfare League of America, they have since apologized, but lasted all the way to 1970. And even now, there is a court challenge to the law that seeks to protect Native children from this, the Indian Child Welfare Act. So the child welfare system has been quite explicitly complicit in all this through much of its history. Absolutely. So when I think about systems change and when I think about the reason why our policies just do this ping pong ball match, you call it the foster fair parent. I call it like the ping pong match of of policies. Mm -hmm. It's like back and forth and back and forth Mm -hmm. is because we have not engaged that seed right? Which you said very clearly. I love how you said it, right? You're like, this was never founded in saving. It was always founded in bigotry, right? There's an expression in Italian. It's like, if you plant oranges, you can't expect apples to fall off the tree. Plant an orange seed, you cannot expect an apple tree to grow, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. from the seed of bigotry, we now have this incredible complex system that is a ramification of that early bigotry of that white privilege, of that total, like, let me dismiss the own crimes that I'm committing against humanity and blame the victim. So thank you for that. I want to talk for a minute for, so you and I agree on, like, a lot of things, right? I want to talk for a minute on something we disagree with around, which is the public health versus social justice, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I I completely respect where you're coming from, which is that the Mm -hmm. mental health call has been used to kind of negate it as a social justice issue. And so Mm -hmm. like you veer away from any mental health things, Mm -hmm. but what part of what I see, and I just saw this in what you shared is that to me, it is a mental health crisis, but it's not a mental health crisis of, of the parents or the families. It's actually a reenactment of trauma at every level in the system. So a lot mm-hmm. of the social workers that like I've interacted with, oftentimes I see having trauma in their own lives, entering mm-hmm. the system in a hope of shifting something and then getting mm-hmm. re-triggered in the presence of a parent. So their own trauma is triggered. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to share a thought I had and then I'll like have you respond to it. But when you were saying it's easier to see the dirty home than feel the love, Mm-hmm. You can't see the love. You have to feel it. Exactly. And we can only feel that love if we felt our parents' love. Because it's so intangible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can only walk into a family home and feel love if you know mm-hmm. how to feel love. And if you walk in with your own wounds, like, mm-hmm. all you're, you're going to see the dirty house. If you walk in with your own wounds, it's very likely you can't feel anything. I think even people who have felt love and have grown up in very loving home environments, that still doesn't mean that you're going to be able to feel the love in the home that looks so vastly different from yours Mm. and which looks like and is physically a mess. Because I think there are so many good people 
in social work who I think did have healthy, good upbringing, but still miss this. And there's a particular blind spot in child welfare. What I find so striking is this. In other fields, people at least almost universally admit that bias exists. Mm. So, for example, the head of the International Association of Chiefs of Police apologized to communities of color for the behavior of police departments. Now, whether that really meant anything, how sincere it was, who knows? But he felt he had to do it, and people in other fields do it. In child welfare, there is this amazing, I call it a caucus of denial. I love that. We're so much better than everyone else that somehow there is no racial bias in our field. And this is said in all seriousness. And what I keep thinking is, well, at least don't you have a moral obligation to share the secret sauce with the rest of us? Tell us how you do it so that all of the rest of society can benefit. But what is helpful in that, the one good thing from the denial is, as racial bias has become more well-known, thanks again, largely to the efforts of, I think, Professor Dorothy Roberts, that has made people in the system so defensive that they will say, oh, no, all those children of color aren't there because of racism. It's because they're poor. Now, that's after decades of denying that they ever took children because of poverty. So mm-hmm. at least the fear of being called out for racial bias gets them to cop to class bias. Got it. So what can people do? Because, I mean, we've been in this work forever, and I think it's really important to leave people with something they can do. I know they can follow your blog, so tell us a little bit more about that. Which I love. Your blog is like the only blog that doesn't go into a slush pile like that I look at. I shouldn't say that on air. Oh, well. How do you think folks can use their collective power, both if you're a parent who's come to the attention of the system, and if you're a social worker or foster parent or someone who just wants to get involved? Okay. In terms of activism, there's a page on our website called How You Can Help Reform Child Welfare. It's at nccpr.org, and that gives some specific suggestions. In terms of what to fight for, I think the single most important thing is creating a fair fight. And what I mean by that is, when I wrote the book, it was full of recommendations for changing laws. I stand by those recommendations. But what I have come to realize is, that's not going to do any good if there's nobody there to enforce them. So I now think the most important single change we can fight for is high-quality family defense counsel. One of the reasons, for example, that New York City, which has terrible problems, that I am not suggesting is a good system, but it's a less bad system than most others. It takes away children at about one-third the rate of Philadelphia, for example. That's right. One of the reasons for that is, in New York, almost every family gets a defense team a lawyer with a reasonable caseload, their own social worker who can fight and propose alternatives to the cookie-cutter case plans that typically come from agencies like Philadelphia DHS. And sometimes a parent advocate has been through the system herself. And we know there's been a massive study of this. It significantly reduces foster care, not because you're getting bad parents off, but because you're coming up with better alternatives. And it is done with no compromise of child safety. So people who can enforce the laws that exist and fight back, high-quality parental defense is vital. 
in places that do not have it, and Philadelphia is one that does not have it, court hearings should be presumed open in these cases. That one of the reasons New York made this progress was they opened the courts well over 20 years ago now, and people saw the injustices and demanded change. In Philadelphia, the judges are terrified of that, and for good reason, because people saw what was going on in those courtrooms. I think they'd be very upset about it. So those are two key elements, high-quality family defense and open courts. I've sat in my share of courtrooms, and I was always questioned. They were always like, why are you here? And in some cases, I was the evaluator of the welfare-to-work program they were in. That was my in. But I know of a lot of advocates who have been kicked out of the courts in Philadelphia oh, yeah. for just like be, wanting to be a witness, which is crazy. Thank you for bringing that to attention. What advice would you have for parents who may be listening? I hesitate to give individual advice because I am not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So my advice is, however, to contact, if you're going through it, there are a couple of groups in your area. DHS, give us back our children is an excellent grassroots organization. And Community Legal Services of Philadelphia provides this kind of high-quality representation. But unfortunately, they don't have the funding to do it with very many cases. But they might be able to help parent in need find somebody who can. Those two groups are places I would suggest turning to in Philadelphia. Awesome. Thank you. And how can people support your work? Well... You can go to nccpr.org, follow the blog, follow us on Twitter at nccpr, and retweet. I almost hesitate to say this. If you can genuinely afford it, there's a donate button. We are a low-budget operation. I'm a volunteer, so is everybody else. But we do need a little bit of money to kind of keep the lights on and pay the phone bills. But again, if, fortunately, the paradox is a lot of the people who come to that site, are there precisely because they don't have a lot of money. So if and only if you feel you can afford to, we do have a button for donations. Thank you, Richard. We're coming towards the end. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Odd as it may sound after everything we have talked about, I am more optimistic now than I have been at almost any time in the past 40 plus years. And the reason for that is there has been such a strength and growth in family advocacy across the country. When I first did my journalism work, there was almost nobody I could talk to who was representing families, who spoke for them, who brought this perspective to the issue. You had similar problems 20 years, 20 years later. That's right. (laughs) And there is a tremendous grassroots family advocacy movement across the country There are groups like another great group, Movement for Family Power. I think of them as the next generation of family advocacy, doing fantastic work. So we are seeing this movement spread. We're seeing it grow. We are seeing that the foster care panics tend to be less virulent than they were before. So I think it's it's an incredibly slow process, but I see real progress. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for the work you you do in the world. Thank you for being on the show. It's always phenomenal to have an opportunity to talk with you, especially face-to-face. I have you on (laughs) Zoom, so I feel very privileged right now. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. 
If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.